after Tisha B'Av, the next um, item that appears on our Jewish calendar is Tu B'Av, which is going to be this evening. I don't know how much we actually know about Tes B'Av B'Av. How much do we actually know about the significance of this day? Why is it significant at all? Um, but there is, in our generation, a lot of discussion about it and a lot of advertising. I thought that maybe perhaps we should back it up a little bit and find out what is this day all about? What is significant? What is special about it? In fact, the Maharil, as quoted by the Ramah, writes that we do not say Tachanun on Tisha B'Av uh, when we daven Shachris in the morning because Tisha B'Av, I'm sorry, on Tuba of because Tuba of is considered to be a quasi-holiday, some kind of very special day. So much so, the Magen Avram adds that if you have a chassan and kala who are getting married on Tuba of, which is a very auspicious day to be getting married, he says that they would not fast. We know that generally the custom is that a chassan and kala fast the day of the wedding. It's a day of mechilas avonos, but yet he says because of the nature of the day being Tuba of, a very celebratory mood, therefore we would not allow a chassan and kala to fast. And the Ramah writes that we don't say a kelmale on Tuba of. So what's going on? What's Tuba of? All about. That's what I wanted to spend some time on this morning. It seems very mysterious. It seems like something we don't know much about, but it seems like something that seems to be very celebrated, and we're not exactly sure why. The Gemara says in Maseches Tainis, the same Gemara shows up in Maseches Baba Basra, Lohayu Yamim Tovim There were no greater festive, more celebrated days on the Jewish calendar than what would you say those days are? If I were to tell you to choose two days out of the Jewish calendar, that are the most exciting and festive days, what would they be? What would you say? Purim, probably. And? Pesach, what do you say? Simchas Torah. All good options. None of the options that anybody mentioned are the ones that the Gemara chooses. The Gemara says the two happiest days on the Jewish calendar are Chamisha Asr Ba'av, which is this evening, and Yom Purim. Not Purim. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a happy day? Says the Gemara, of course, what's not to be happy about? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is willing to give you a slicha o mechila ve kapara. The Rebona Shalom is willing to forgive you and give you another chance. What can be better than that? Aside from that, says the Gemara, on Yom Kippur was the day when HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us luchos shnios. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, Salachti kidvarecha. He forgave us for the terrible sin of the Egel Azov. And then he allowed us to have the luchos a second time. This is an extreme celebration on Yom HaKippurim. It's not always the mood that you feel when you come into shul on Yom Kippur. But it's what the Gemara says. It's what we should feel. We should feel a tremendous sense of excitement, of encouragement, that the Rebona Shalom is willing to give us another chance. That's what Yom Kippur is. And the second says the Gemara is, Chamisha Asar Ask the Gemara, what happened on Chamisha Asar Why are we so excited? And the Gemara lists six different events that took place on the 15th day of Av. What are those six events? This is what we're going to get into. I'm going to explain each one separately, but let me just say the six first. And each of them happened at a slightly different period in Jewish history. Number one says the Gemara, this was the Yom Shekalubo Mesei Midbar. This was the day when the people stopped dying in the desert. We'll have to see what that means. Number two, this was the day that the Shvatim were allowed to marry one another. I wouldn't say intermarriage because it was intertribal marriage, I guess. But this was the day when they were allowed to marry into one another. Number three, says the Gemara, this was the Yom Shehutar Shevet Binyamin Lava Bikahal. This was the day when they allowed Binyamin to come back into the fold. Going to have to see what that means. Which Binyamin, what period of history, when was he 
an outcast, and why did they let him back? Number four, this was the day that Hoshea, who was one of the Jewish kings, Hoshiv Pardasos Yerabam, he destroyed the vineyards of Yerabam ben Nevat. Now, I'm sure many of us in the room have never heard of Hoshea and have never heard of Yerabam ben Nevat either, and that's what we're going to have to talk about. So that seems to be significant. Number five, this was the day that Haruge Beitar were given the opportunity to be buried. Now, who are the Haruge Beitar? We'll get to that as well. And number six, this was the day, Yom Shepasku Milichros Atzei Hama'aracha. This was the day when they stopped cutting the wood. So if you're confused, you're in very good company because we need to get into each of these and figure out what they're all about. And particularly at this time in our Jewish history, you know, it's painful. And I, and I don't like to come off as saying that we know better or we would do something differently or we would be more equipped to handle the situation than somebody else was. The bottom line is what's happening in Eretz Yisrael now, whether, whether you feel that the judicial reforms are right or the judicial reforms are wrong, I would venture to say most people have no idea what the judicial reforms are all about, which is why when I was in Eretz Yisrael a few months ago, I asked the person who wrote the judicial reforms to sit down with myself and Ephraim Goldberg and explain to us what this is. I said to him, everybody is talking about it. We see it on the news every day. I have no clue what this means. And he sat down with us for over two hours and explained what this is. And when you hear it, it gives you a little bit more of a perspective of what's actually going on, of what the issue really is all about, and how basically every democracy in the world has what the judicial reforms are asking for. It's not anything that's as outrageous as it's being perceived by many. But if you really want to give an opinion about it, you first have to sit down and find out what's really going on. Aside from that, it's just tragic. Whether you believe in what's happening or you don't, the consequence of what's happening and the way and the style in which it's being done is something that is extremely divisive and it's tearing the Jewish people apart. You know, you have previous prime ministers that are going on international TV and calling for a civil war. This is horrific. This is horrible. And this is something that I find to be extremely painful. Again, I'm not passing judgment because I'm not there. I'm not the prime minister. I'm not a citizen of the state of Israel. I'm not entitled to have an opinion on the matter. So I'm not giving an opinion. All I'm giving an opinion on is the fact that the Jewish people are tearing themselves apart and fighting with one another is extremely painful. It should be painful for us. It should be very hurtful. It should be something that bothers us. I remember reading from Rav Kook in one of his farm where he writes, and it's a famous saying, but he says, If we believe that we were destroyed and the world around us was totally torn apart because of the only way that the world can restore itself and bring itself back to a place that's manageable is if we try to think a little bit about Now, there are those who have said there's no such thing as because... There's no such thing as not having a reason to love another Jew. There are a million reasons. I, I don't even understand what that means. Um, there are reasons to love people. There are reasons not to appreciate people. All of us have our own styles. Everybody has their own way of life. And some people make us happy when we talk to them. And other people make us disappointed. Everybody has a different kind of uh, outlook and perspective. But our job is to try to think a little bit about this concept, and although we don't live in Eretz Yisrael and we don't have the opportunity to be a part of the issue that's going on now, I think this is something that should give us pause to all have an opportunity to think about for ourselves in our own situation, to think about what we are doing. So 
I think that this is, uh, as you'll see when we wrap up the shear, you'll see what relevance that has to all that the Gemara discusses here. But basically, the Gemara seems to make it clear that there are six different events that happen on Tesvav Ba'av, on the 15th day of Av, and all of them seem to have a major significance to all of us, even so many generations later. Number one, the Gemara asks, the Gemara says that one of the greatest days on the Jewish calendar is Chamisha Asar Ba'av. So the Ritva in Masechas Baba Basra, one of the Rishonim asks, really, is that true? You're telling me this was the greatest celebration? If you look at the end of Masechas Sukkah, the Gemara describes that on Sukkot every night they had a Simchas Beis HaShoeva. If you did not attend the Simchas Beis HaShoeva and the Beis HaMikdash, you have never experienced Simcha in your life. You don't know what it means to be in a state of Simcha. You may have gone to the most exciting party, you may have gone to the most exciting wedding, but you don't know what it means to be in a state of Simcha because you haven't attended the Simchas Beis HaShoeva and you're missing out. So ask the Ritva, if you're telling me that the Simchas Beis HaShoeva was the highlight of the celebration of the Jewish calendar, then how does the Gemara say in our context that one of the greatest days of celebration on the calendar was Tubav? And this was something that almost eclipsed everything else that we experienced. Why is there no mention of the Simchas Beis HaShoeva? So the Ritva asked this question. The Shemi Shmuel in his Sefer on Chumash gives an unbelievable answer, really just an amazing answer, where he writes, Benira, it seems to me, he says, when somebody is going to have a powerful experience, the most powerful experience you can give a person is when they experience the total contrast of this, and now you bring them into this reality. Right? What does it mean? It's a Pasuk that we recite every day in Mizmar Shir. means, I was in a place of such depression, of such sadness, and the Rebona Shalom was hofechit. He totally turned it on its head and gave me the opposite experience. Right? If you have somebody who goes to the Blind Museum in Israel, everybody been there? Maybe. I've actually never been there. So, big talker. I am going with my kids, finally, next week, yes. So you go to the Blind Museum in Israel, but I've been told it's really, really, really dark, and you can't see a thing. It's true can't see a thing. But I'm sure when you walk out and you start looking at the sunlight, you start squinting and it's hard. It's hard to have that contrast, but it makes you appreciate the light all the more so. It makes you appreciate the ability for your eyes to see when you've had that contrasting experience that showed you what it means not to be able to see. And this is just one example, but says the Shemi Shmuel, there is nothing that can make a person feel and appreciate what they have than taking something away from them and then having the opportunity to have it back. That's really the way he describes it. And therefore he says, Writes the Shemi Shmuel, what exactly is the objective of every Yom Tif that we celebrate throughout the year? Pesach Shavuot is what's it all about? Of course, we have a nice time with family and we sit around the table and we come together with friends and we have a community and it's all beautiful and it's all great. But that's not the objective. That's a part of what we do. But what is the objective? The objective is to have an opportunity to come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And we spend time in shul, and we spend time with the Ribbona Shalolam, and we celebrate all the miracles that he did before us on each of these Yamim Tovim. But the point is really to give us a perspective of how HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in our lives. That's really what Yom Tov is. Says the Shemi Shmuel. Although it's true that on Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, we are supposed to have the opportunity of appreciation 
for what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in our lives. However, he says, there's nothing that can make us appreciate the Rebona Shalola more than the times that we feel distant from him. When you feel distant, and then suddenly you're given an opportunity to feel close, that is the greatest contrast, and that's what makes us appreciate that relationship most. Is there a day on the Jewish calendar where we feel more distant from the Ribbona Shalolam than on Tisha B'av? And he writes, as the Navi Yeshaya tells us, HaKadosh Baruch Hu almost separates himself from man. The Ribbona Shalolam makes some kind of partition between himself and us. And that's what we feel on Tisha B'av. We feel a sense of deep Hester Panim. We feel that the Ribbona Shalolam is not as close to us as he otherwise would be. And therefore he says the reaction to that, when we have a day of celebration, immediately following Tisha B'av, that is the greatest sense of Simcha. Because you finally feel I have an opportunity to reunite with the Ribbona Shalolam that was taken away from my experience. And that's really what Tuba of is something that the Gemara highlights here as being a great day of celebration because it's the contrast to everything that Tisha B'av represented for us in our experience this past week. So let's try to understand exactly what the events of the Gemara are all about. The first thing the Gemara says is, this is the day, Yom Shekalubo Meisei Hamidbar. This is the day when the people stopped dying in the desert. Now what exactly is that a reference to? We all are familiar with the story of the Meraglim. The Chet HaMeraglim was in some way considered to be an unforgivable mistake when HaKadosh Baruch Hu had the Meraglim were sanctioned to go to Eretz Yisrael. They came back, they gave a negative report. Everything's wrong with the land of Israel. We can't go there. It's a land of giants. We're never going to survive. We're not going to be able to prosper. Nothing's going to move forward. And basically, they come back and convince the Jewish people that this is not our future. We should not be having an eye toward Eretz Yisrael because this is not where we're headed. And basically, the Jewish people accepted it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says in Parsha Shlach, I want you to know as a response, as a reaction to the way you felt about Eretz Yisrael. I want you to know that every one of you is going to die here in the desert. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I want you all to know, this is such an unforgivable act. You're going to die in the Midbar as a result of this mistake. Don't think I'm going to let you get away with tshuva. Not this time. You make other mistakes, maybe, but not this time. What happened? HaKadosh Baruch Hu says that every man between the age of 20 and 60 is going to die in the Midbar. Aside from that, he told them, I mean, it's the same thing, but he told them, you're not going to be allowed entry into the land of Eretz Yisrael. And the third thing that was said was that they are going to wander for 40 years in the desert, which was not the original plan. But as a result of that mistake, they wander for 40 years in the desert. And this is the famous words of the Medrash, Atem bechisem shalchinam, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, you cried? You cried for no reason? You didn't appreciate Eretz Yisrael? I'll give you a reason to cry on Tisha B'av. And unfortunately, we've had many, many reasons over the years to cry on Tisha B'av, But that's really where it all started. Now, what happened? The Medrash gives us an insight into what exactly happened during those 40 years. Does it mean that the men between the ages of 20 and 60 just died along the way? Is that how it happened? haphazardly, says the Medrash, no. Here's what happened. It's a terrifying description. Amr Levi, put yourself into the situation and try to imagine what this reality was like. Call Erev Tishabav, 
Moshe Motzi Kruz Moshe Rabbeinu goes around and gives an announcement every year on Erev Tishabav. What is the announcement? The announcement is not make sure you eat and make sure that you drink and make sure that you are hydrated and make sure you do what you need to do. No. He goes around Erev Tishabav and makes a separate announcement. What was his announcement? His announcement was Seulach Par. Everyone should go outside and start digging. Erev Tishabav, what are we going to dig? Everybody understood what Moshe Rabbeinu meant. He meant we should go outside and dig ourselves a grave. Everybody went outside, dug their own grave, and went to sleep the night of Tishabav in the grave. That's what they did. In the morning, Moshe Rabbeinu comes around and makes an announcement. Okay, everybody out. And let's see who makes it out. And who died in their sleep? That's the story. Says the Medrash, every year, 15,000 people didn't wake up. 15,000 people every year. So imagine Erev Tishabav. You go into your own grave, not knowing whether you're going to wake up in the morning. Now, Every night we go to sleep not knowing if we're going to wake up in the morning, but it doesn't dawn on us that maybe that's a possibility. That happens to other people. It doesn't happen to us. We are invincible. Everybody knows that. So we wake up in the morning and we say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Elokai Neshama Shanasatabi, we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving us the opportunity to wake up in the morning. It's not a given, but to all of us, it is a given. We assume we went to sleep, we're going to wake up. That's the way it goes. Imagine you went into a grave and you actually didn't know if you were going to wake up. Now, the first year, nobody really knew what was going to happen. Okay, he wants us to dig a grave. After the first Tishabav, when 15,000 people that you knew didn't wake up, who's interested in going back into the grave the next year, Tishabav? Maybe I'm going to be next. Maybe you'll say, you know what? That was a one-time fluke. 15,000 people didn't wake up. It's not going to happen again. Second Tishabav, you go into the grave, and the same thing happens. The next 15,000 people die. And over the course of these 40 years, 600,000 people died this way. All as a result of the terrible, terrible mistake of the Chet In the final year that they were in the desert, that they were in the Midbar, Erev Tishabah, Moshe Rabbeinu gets up, makes the same announcement. Everybody go dig a grave. Everybody goes in. It's the last group that's left. And they're terrified. This is it. We're the last ones. Every year it's been 15,000. We're the last 15,000 left. Nobody else is here. And they all go into the grave. Moshe Rabbeinu comes around in the morning to make the announcement and everybody wakes up. And they're all convinced it must be that we're misreading the calendar. It must be it's not Tishabav. Of course, they didn't have a set calendar like we have. So Moshe Rabbeinu makes an announcement the next night. Okay, everybody back in the grave again. They go back in again and again and again, three or four nights in a row until they look up to the sky and they see that the moon is already filled out, which means, obviously, it's the 15th of the month. It can't be the 9th of the month because the moon wouldn't look this way. And they realize, finally, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has lifted that decree of everybody dying. Finally, this year, people are not going to die anymore. And they made such a simcha that the Ribbon Shalom stopped 
killing all the people in the Midbar, something that they had experienced for 39 years in a row. Just imagine that, 39 years in a row digging your own grave, only to wake up in the morning and see that so many people around you have perished. That's the first reason we have Simcha on Tesvav Ba'av, because this was the day when that Gzeira, when that terrible decree against the Jewish people was finally lifted. The second thing the Gemara says is this was the Yom Shehutru HaShvatim Lavo Zebazeh, which means when they came to Eretz Yisrael with Yoshua ben Nun, as we read in these parshios, Moshe Rabbeinu was not allowed to go into the land. Yoshua ben Nun took the charge, allowed the Jewish people to go in, but it took some time. It was Sheva Shekivshu Sheva Shechilki, it was seven years of them conquering the land and seven years of them dividing up the land. Why did it take seven years to divide up the land? Because you had 12 Shvatim, and you had each Shevet had a designated place where they belonged or didn't belong, and you had to make sure that everybody was properly set up and taken care of. It takes time. It takes time. You have millions of people. It's not so easy. So that's what was going on for 14 years after they entered into the land of Eretz Yisrael. In that interim period, there was a halacha that no Shevet is allowed to marry into another Shevet. Now, I don't know if there was a Shidduch crisis then. I have no idea. But how would I feel... Forgetting Shidduch crisis, if I was limited in my pool of people I'm allowed to marry, right? Sometimes you talk to somebody who lives in a certain Hasidic community, different ones are different, but you talk to some of these individuals and you ask them, like, what are your prospects for Shidduchim? Like, who are you planning to marry? The answer is, you know, it's either my Mechutin's Mechutin, or their Mechutin, or somebody else who davens in our Shtibel, who is part of our community, we're only marrying into this Hasidic sect and we wouldn't marry out. That's the way it was in the days of the Shvatim when they came into Eretz Yisrael. Why? Why was it that nobody was allowed to marry into another Shevet? Maybe I have a liking to a boy from another Shevet or to a young woman from another Shevet. Why should I be limited? It's hard enough to get married as is. Now you're going to tell me I have to get married to somebody who lives down the block from me? Maybe I don't like them. Right? There's a local therapist that tells me all the time that she deals with a lot of local people because she's local. She says... I don't know whose children, who my children are going to marry because I know about everyone. I guess they're going to have to marry yours because you also know about everybody in this community. So I didn't want to say, I'm not sure I want my children marrying yours. But okay. Anyway. So Yom Shehutru Shvatim Lavo Zebazeh. That was a joke. Yom Shehutru Shvatim Lavo Zebazeh. What does it mean? So the reason why we weren't allowed to marry into one another is because we wanted to make sure that the Chalukah Sa'aretz went properly. We wanted to make sure that each Shevet got the designated space that they were deserving of. If you're going to have somebody marry into another Shevet, then what's going to happen? They're going to take the piece of land that was given and appropriated to them, and they're going to then give it to another Shevet. Because if my son marries your daughter, or your daughter marries my son, we're going to end up exchanging, and it was going to mess everything up. So in that first generation, when they came in, we said we have to have an absolute standard that each Shevet only marries within itself. And this way we make sure that everyone's property remains where it belongs. Then that takana was lifted on Tuba of. After they finished splitting up the land and after that generation was already settled, they then came up and said, we no longer have this restriction, we no longer have this limitation, everybody's where they should be. And now, once again, the Shvatim are allowed to marry one another. Imagine what a relief that was. Imagine what a feeling that was. Finally, people have more possibilities. Finally, people have more opportunities to get married, to interact, to get to know another Shevet, to see another part. I always feel when I go to Eretz Yisrael, you know, sometimes 
we as, as tourists, we go to Eretz Yisrael. We don't live there. So we go to Eretz Yisrael and we spend time in one little enclave, right? So we go to visit wherever we like to be there. Some members of our shul have houses in Netanya. Some members of our shul have houses in Rechavia and some in Baca and some over here. So you spend time in your little place, but the beauty of Eretz Yisrael is when you actually travel the land and you see the different flavor of different communities and you see what's going on and you appreciate them and hug him and you walk into a shul and you see how they do things and it's just, it's part of what it is and you go into this bakery and that thing and you see different foods and different, it's just, it's part of what's so beautiful about who we are and says the Gemara that this is really what made Tuba of a very special day. That finally the Jewish people once again had the opportunity to appreciate one another. Everybody was off limits for a certain period of time, for an entire generation. Everybody was limited to themselves and to their close family, and there was no venturing out. And at this point, it was now opened up. That's a reason for celebration. Number three, the Gemara tells us that Tuba Av is the day when Shevet Binyamin was allowed to come back into the fold. What is that a reference to? Here's the story. It's a story in Sefer Shoftim, one of the most tragic events in all of the Nevi'im that is described. The story is known as Pilegesh Begiva. What is the story of Pilegesh Begiva? The story in a nutshell, it's a few prakim long, but the story in a nutshell goes as follows. I've, I've long wanted to teach Navi here, and I don't really have the opportunity to do it. But whenever we have a chance, I try to throw it in, because Navi is very important for us to know. The story basically is that there was a man from Shevet Levi, he lived in Har Ephraim, the Navi says, and he had a Pilegesh. A Pilegesh was a very unusual reality. It wasn't 100% marriage, but they were, they were living together, halachically, a very interesting reality. But basically, the Gemara says that that was permissible. We don't do that today, but that's what used to be done. So he had this woman. They were married. They were whatever. They were together. They were very close. And one fine day, she abandoned him. And she went back to her parents' home. And for whatever reason, it doesn't really describe why, she decided she should go back, leave her husband behind, and go back to her parents' home. He decided he was going to respect the boundary. He was going to respect her decision. If she wants to separate for a little bit and she needs some space, that's fine. And he allowed her to be on her own by her parents' house without sending any messages, without trying to go after her. And after a few months, he said, you know, look, the intent was she was going to go back to her parents' house and then she was going to come back at some point. So let me go find her. So he goes traveling to her parents' community, to Beit Lechem, and after a few months, he finds her and they get back together. And he's living in the parents' home for a number of months as well. And he's trying to rehabilitate his relationship with his wife. And at some point, um, he realizes that it's just not going to work. If we want to build this marriage, it's not going to work in our parents' house. Word for the wise. It's just not going to work in our parents' house. So we're going to have to leave. And the Navi describes how the father is trying to convince him not to leave. Okay. One fine day, he decides it's really time to go. Talks to his wife, and uh, they all say their goodbyes, and he gets up with his pilegesh, with his wife, and they move out, and they venture back to go back to the community where they belonged. As they're traveling, um, it's nightfall, and they can't travel through the night. There were no lights. So they decide that they were going to stop over somewhere and find a place to sleep. The problem was that at that time, Yerushalayim was not a place to sleep, as the Navi writes in Shoftim, Lo b'mene Yisrael hema. At that time, Yerushalayim was not populated with Jews. At that time, the Yevusim, one of the nations who lived in Israel, was populating the place of Yerushalayim. And he said, I'm not comfortable knocking on one of their doors and trying to find a place to stay. I don't trust them. I don't know. It's interesting that we do trust Jews wherever we go. That's interesting, right? It's fascinating. But that's the way we are. 
So he says, we have to go to a community and find a place where we'll feel comfortable, where we can actually go to stay. He goes to a certain community, to Ari bin Yamin, uh, to the land of Sheva bin Yamin, and he's waiting there on the street, and everybody's walking right by him, and he makes it clear that he's stranded, and he has nowhere to go, and he's an outsider, and nobody offers to help him, and he starts asking around, is anybody willing to have us, anybody willing to host us? Nope, everybody just ignores him, and he's completely stuck. And along comes one fine elderly gentleman from Harafraim, and he's uh, going on his way back home from the fields, and he passes this, this uh, couple, and he starts engaging them in conversation, and he says, um, you know, is there anything you need? They said, yeah, we actually are stuck here, we were traveling, and we have nowhere to go, would you, would you mind helping us out? And he says, sure, please come to my home. And he invites them in, and it says that he gives them what to eat, and he gives them something to drink, and he really takes good care of them. And uh, as they're sitting around and eating, the description that's given is there are a number of, I don't know what you call them, delinquents who come to the house, and they surround this entire house, and they start pounding on the door, and they tell this man, we heard that you have a guest in your house, please send him out. What does this remind us of? Sodom. There are a lot of parallels that are, descri- that are discussed about how this is similar to Sodom. You'll see in another minute. And basically they said um, we, their intent was that they were going to molest this man, whatever they were going to do. That was what they were trying to do. And the, the host was not going to buy it. He wasn't going to let it happen. So he locked the door and he said, absolutely not. And then he realized they were going to break his windows and they were going to hurt him. So they were negotiating, they were talking back and forth, and finally he says, listen, this man also has a wife, and I also have a daughter. So instead of taking the man, why don't you take these two women? That's a really bad idea. That was a bad idea. But that was a suggestion. Again, he had nothing evil in mind. His intention was, I know what you all want from this man. I'm not going to give it to you. Spend a little time with a woman instead. That's what he tried to do. Him and his guests were terrified the entire evening to open the door. What was going on outside was something that they were not aware of, but basically they raped and assaulted this woman the entire evening, his wife, and left her on the doorstep. And the next morning when he woke up and he saw that everything was clear outside, he goes out to look for his wife. And he sees as he walks out of the house that his wife is there on the doorstep, unresponsive. She had basically collapsed from exhaustion and from the terrible emotional trauma of the abuse that she went through the whole night, and she died. And he was obviously enraged, as he should have been. And he didn't know what to do. And instead of going to bury his wife, he decided he's going to make a statement out of what just happened. Sorry for the graphic details here. But he took his wife's body and he cut it up into 12 different pieces. And he went to each shavet across the entire land of Israel and gave them a piece and said, Look what shavet Binyamin just did to my wife. Look what kind of people we are. Look what just happened. And he described the whole story that had happened, that they came and they laid siege around the house and then they raped his wife the whole night and then they killed her. And he wanted the Jewish people to be outraged on his behalf. And they were. 
The Jewish people all came en masse. The entire Jewish army, 400,000 soldiers, came and laid siege on this small community of Binyamin, which was 26,000 soldiers. So 400,000 versus 26,000. And they entered into the town and they said, you must hand over whoever it was that was involved in this because we're going to kill them. Not because they had any connection with this family, but because they were outraged. How can the Jewish people behave like this? We won't stand for it. And to me, that in itself is a tremendous lesson. Are we prepared to stand up and say, this is outrageous and I won't stand for it? How far are we willing to go for someone that we have no connection to, that we have no relationship with, but something that pains us so much that we're not willing to remain silent about it? We won't remain silent because it's too painful to stay silent about. And we're going to do whatever it takes to bring justice to the person who deserves it. And that's what happened. So the Jewish people come. Shevet Binyamin refuses to hand over the individuals who were involved in the story. And they say, listen, all out civil war. All out civil war. If you're not willing to hand them over, we're going to kill every single member of this tribe. And they start murdering Shevet Binyamin. Tens of thousands of people were killed on both sides in this battle. After the battle was over, after the battle was over, there were only 600 male members of Shevet Binyamin who were alive. That's it. And they made a takana, they made a rule that none of us are ever going to allow our children to marry anyone from Shevet Binyamin. They need to pay a price for what they did. And the price that they paid is not heavy enough. The fact that we killed all the members of this community is not enough. If there's any surviving member of this tribe, we will not allow our children to marry them. It's amazing. I, I'm amazed by this. Think about in our communal context, in our communal discussions about abuse and what we're willing to do to protect the victim, what we're willing to do to advocate on behalf of the victim. How far would you go? How far would you go? They went very far and they felt that they were doing justice to this person. So they not only murdered the entire Shevet, but they said any remaining member of the Shevet will not be allowed to marry any of our children. This was going on for years, and at some point they realized what's going to ultimately happen is there's going to be no more Shevet Binyamin. And that's not good. Of course they should pay a price, but we shouldn't wipe out the whole Shevet. It's uh, in simple scientific terms, if nobody gets married, there aren't going to be any children. And if there aren't any children, the Shevet is going to disappear. So what do we do? So on Tuba Av happened to be the day when they lifted this ban and they said the remaining members of Shevet Binyamin who are still alive, we're going to figure out how to get them married into somebody in our community so that we can perpetuate the legacy of Shevet Binyamin after the terrible price that they have paid for what they did wrong with Pilegesh Begiva. And that was considered to be a major simcha on the Jewish calendar. The common thread between all this is, this was a day when Jewish people were brought back together. This is the day when Jewish people were finally allowed to marry one another again. This is the day when Shevet Binyamin was brought back into the fold. This is a day when we focus, after the terrible destruction on Tisha B'av, this is a day when we focus on how good a job are we doing at bringing the Jewish people together to the best of our ability. 
That's really what Tuba of is all about. The Gemara then goes further and tells us that this was the day that Hosea got rid of all the activities that Yeravim ben Nevat had put in the way of the Jewish people. What does that mean? I think probably the most infamous character in all of Tanakh is Yeravim ben Nevat. I think I can say that with, with certainty. Yeravim ben Nevat is considered to be a tremendous Russia, an unbelievably evil person. What happened with Yeravim ben Nevat? He was one of the Jewish kings at the time. And the Mishnah tells us in Sanhedrin, we're all familiar with the statement, Every Jew has a portion in the world to come. What we're not familiar with is the end of the statement. Yes, every Jew has a portion in the world to come, except for the following who don't have a portion in the world to come. And who are they? And who are they? One of them, one of the very select few on that list, is Yeravam ben Nevat. Will not have a portion in the world to come. Because what he did was so outrageous... What he did was so unforgivable, it was so egregious of an error, he will never be forgiven for what he did. It's a, it's a concept that you need to wrap your head around a little bit also. Are there things that people can do to me that are unforgivable acts? Somebody wrote to me before Tishabel, I'm reminding myself now that I didn't respond. Somebody wrote to me that a lot of people are talking about Avas Chinam and all these things, and they said, we have a neighbor who we absolutely hate. Now, why do we hate our neighbor? For good reason. Because every time we try to do anything, they don't allow us to do it. They don't let the kids play in the backyard. It's too much noise. They don't let us, you know, do any construction. They're always canceling the variances. They're always going to the town. They're always complaining. They're calling the police on us. They're making our lives miserable. So they said, do we not have a right as tax-paying members of a community to have our kids play in the backyard? I'm not talking about playing in the backyard at 11 o'clock at night. Playing in the backyard in the afternoon. What right do our neighbors have to call the police on us? What right do our neighbors have to destroy us? So she said, I have very hard feelings toward my neighbor. And everybody's talking about Avas Chinam, but I don't have it in me to have Avas Chinam for this person. So this woman asked me, like, what am I supposed to feel? I forgot to respond. I'm responding now, but I'll call her later. I think it's a really good question. I've asked my father this many times. Is it true? You know, everybody makes these calls before Yom Kippur. You mochanla, you text, you know, this, oh, I hope you're... Mo-. Every year, there's somebody who, te- who sends me an email. I hope you're mochanla for all the things that I did this year. Somebody in this shul. And every year I respond. I, I always respond. I always respond. What have you done? This email is so meaningless to me. If you've done something really terrible, let's talk about it. If you haven't, why are you sending me a mass email that you're sending to every person in this community? It means nothing. That's tshuva? What is that? That's not tshuva. So there was a girl in this neighborhood who asked me, her father did some very, very heinous crimes, let's just say to her, let's just say, and she was talking to me about it once. And she said that, you know, it's years later and her father is very angry why she doesn't have a relationship with him. And, and she asked me, am I supposed to forgive him? He ruined your life. Forever. Are you supposed to forgive him? Right now, how can you forgive him? You really feel that you're in a place 
where you have inside of yourself to forgive him? So she said, well, I go into Yom Kippur every year with so much guilt. How can I have this weighing on me that I'm the reason why he's going to be punished? You're not the reason why he's going to be punished. He's the reason why he's going to be punished. Because he abused you. He's the problem, not you. It's not your problem to forgive him. Right now. Maybe there will come a time. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe that time will come. But right now, you're a young woman. Your life is destroyed because of him. What does forgiveness even mean? You don't mean that. You don't want to forgive him. So when we're given this concept of it exists. But the Mishnah then qualifies the statement and says, there are some who don't have a chelek which means there is a concept in the world of an unforgivable sin. There is such a thing. It means you can make a mistake in your life or you can deliberately do something wrong that is so destructive that you can't walk it back. The greatest example of that is a mamzer. You brought a mamzer into the world. You did that because you couldn't control your taiva, because you did something wrong, because you were involved in a relationship that you shouldn't have been involved in. The bottom line is you created a major problem. Says the Gemara, it's what we call a mu'uvas la yachaliskon. It's a problem that is not fixable. You created something horrible. Yes, you're at fault for it. You should pay the price every day of your life. There are such things. Says the Gemara, one of those people is Yeravam Benavah. One of those people is Yeravam Benavah. What's the story with Yeravam Benavah? You know, we're all familiar with the story of the Egel Azav. HaKadosh Baruch Hu was so upset that we built an Egel Azav and we were dancing around it, celebrating it, worshipping it. If you think that was bad, let's just give it a context. How long was the Egel Azav in operation? How long did it last? What do you say? One day. Now, one day serving Abedazara is pretty terrible. But it was one day. Yeravam ben Avat made two Egalazavs that lasted 250 years. 250 years is a long time. It's a long time. I know I'm young. But 250 years is a very long time. And Yeravam ben Avat what happened was there was a split in the Malchus Yisrael. There was a, two different Jewish kings. He was one of them. The capital of one of the Jewish kings of Malchus Yehuda was in Yerushalayim, of course. You go to Yerushalayim now and they show you the palaces. They're digging up. They're finding all these different excavations and things to see. It's fascinating. That was the capital city of one faction of the Jewish people. Yeravim ben Avadu was the king, Melech Yisrael, had his capital somewhere else. And he was concerned that if people are going to continue to be Ola Regel, if people are going to go Shalosh Pa'amid Bashana to visit the Beis Hamikdash, their allegiance is going to be with the king who rules over Yerushalayim and not with me. Now, just get a context here. This is when the Beis Hamikdash was around. That's when this was happening. So you have a Beis Hamikdash, which is the pride and joy of the Jewish people. And you have a Jewish king who gets up and discourages people from going to visit. He realizes after he's trying to discourage them, it's not working. So it says that Hoshiv Pardisos, he puts um, police officers along the way. 
And he says, Kol Misha Ola Laregel Yidaker Bacherev. Anyone who dares pass this line over here to go toward Yerushalayim to be Ola Regel is going to be killed. First generation tries to fight it, resistance. Okay, after a certain amount of time, that's what it was. And he then, in a, as a replacement for the Beis Hamikdash, he builds an Egel Azov, places it in a community, builds a second one, places it somewhere else, in order that it should encourage people, instead of serving our Kaddish Baruch Hu in Yerushalayim, we're going to start serving an Egel in other places. We all have a spiritual desire to be connected to something, so we're going to create something else in the place of the Ribbon Shalolam. This went on for over 200 years. Now, he didn't live 200 years, but every subsequent Melech Yisrael continued on with Yeravam's plan. I'll give you just, if you go through, I don't know how much Navi we're familiar with, but if you go through every single one of the Navim that describes the Melech that lived at their time, there's this recurrent description that is given over and over again. I'll read just a few. Nadav was the son of Yerava. Nadav went along with the plan of his father and he continued on perpetuating this horrific experience that his father had created. Basha was the next king. Then there was a son by the name of Allah who went along and did the same thing. Zimri was the next Melech who did it as well. Then we're told... Omri was the next one. Over and over again, every single king goes along with the plan of Yeravam. Yeravam is long gone. He's dead for 35, 40, 50 years. Forget about people over time. But he created such a strong pull to this Avodah to this concept, that they just couldn't get rid of it. And this lingered on for 223 years. Until along comes Hosea, and he says, enough is enough. And he destroys the Abedazeras. He gets rid of these Egel Hazavs that were created. And he reinstates the old tradition of coming to Yerushalayim. And he says, everybody who wants has a right to go back to Yerushalayim. And the Medrash actually writes that he was punished for saying it that way. The Medrash writes, although you destroy the Avodah Zarah and everything is great, you shouldn't have said everyone has a right, you should have said everyone has an obligation. The Torah tells us, Shalosh pa'amim bashana yeroa kol You don't have a right to say Kriya Shema in the morning, you have an obligation. It's hard for our children to hear that they have an obligation to do anything today. But there are obligations. It exists. There is such a thing. You have an obligation to follow the laws of the Torah. It's not a suggestion. It's an obligation. And it's an uncomfortable concept. Who's going to tell me what to do? It's not the way our democracy works today. Yes, the Ribbon Shalom tells us what to do. And the Medrash writes that because he phrased it in a way of he said, we're now taking away the police officers and anybody who wants to go to Yerushalayim can go. Instead of realizing you're in a position of authority, you're the Melech Yisrael, you can say that I'm passing a law that every Jew must go to Eretz Yisrael, must go to Yerushalayim. You had the ability, the capacity to do that. And you didn't. And the Medrash writes, as a result of that, the Aseris HaShvatim went into Galus because of that. 
which is interesting. They didn't go into Galus because they served Avodah Zarah. They didn't go into Galus because Yeravam's plan was perpetuated for 200 years. They went into Galus because finally when they had the opportunity to go to the Beis Amigdash, they didn't. Because nobody encouraged them enough. What a, what a Musr. What our grandparents would have given to go to Eretz Yisrael, to go to Yerushalayim. They didn't have the opportunity. But we do have the opportunity. We have the opportunity. Anybody who wants to visit Yerushalayim today has a chance to do that. Do we do it enough? Do we feel connected enough? This is what caused the Galus Hashvatim. That one point, not the serving Abedazar, but rather the Abedazar Yeravim is going to have to pay a price for. The Jewish people are not to be blamed for serving Abedazar. What do you want from them? They're growing up in a community where this is the law. What should they do? They have no choice. You know what you're punished for? You're punished because when you're given the chance to go back to Eretz Yisrael, to go back to Yerushalayim, you ignore it. Take it as a nice suggestion. Okay, nice idea. Maybe I'll go, maybe I won't go. Aruba is also a nice place to go. Mexico is a good place to be. Caribbeans, all good places. South France, of course, everywhere. How do you not go to Yerushalayim? How do you not go to Yerushalayim? When you're given the chance, the opportunity to be there. That's the important takeaway. But this was a reason for great celebration because the Jewish people were once again given access to Yerushalayim. And that was also on Tuba of. The Gemara mentions as well that this was the day that Yom Shednitnu Lekvura Haruge Beitar. What's the story of Haruge Beitar? If you're familiar at all in the days of the Tanoim, Bar Kochva was a very charismatic figure. Rabbi Akiva believed that Bar Kochva was Mashiach. He believed that Bar Kochva was Mashiach. And Bar Kochva led a revolt against the Romans and they lost the war. The Jewish people lost the war and as a result there were tens of thousands of Jews who were killed, brutally murdered in Betar. Betar was an Ir Ve'em Israel. Betar was a very significant community in the Jewish people at the time. And at the time, Lo Nitnu Lekvura, it says that they were not given the opportunity to bury any of those Jews. There's someone in our community now whose brother passed away. It's, it's an appalling story. His brother passed away with no identification. I'm not sharing private information. He shares this with everybody. But this is, this is such a tragic story. His brother passed away with no identification. He never traveled and he never drove. So he didn't have a driver's license and he didn't have a passport. It's very unusual. People don't usually live that way, but that's what he had. And he passed away in his house. So he passed away, and now he needs to be identified. How do you identify someone? Now, the easiest way to identify them is to have a family member come and recognize who they are. The federal government says, who says that you're related to him? Why should we trust you when you say this is a person, maybe it's someone else? So they have to do genetic testing now, which is going to take six or seven weeks to come back to identify who this is when we look at him and we know exactly who it is. But identification is not enough. Identification only works when I have an identifying factor that I can match it to. But that's not the case here. And this person was saying, again, this is not a private conversation. This is something he's been telling a lot of people in the neighborhood how this is a tremendous nisayon. The unsettling nature that my brother is sitting in a morgue somewhere for the next two months and we can't bury him. 
That's very unsettling. As- aside from the mitzvah of cover tigbereno, of course we have a mitzvah of kvura and we're supposed to give kavod ames, but we can't, we're stuck. What an awful position to be in. What a terrible thing. What a shame. What a shame. Think about that on a scale of hundreds of thousands of people shalonitnu l'kvura. Right, we talk about Rachman al-Litzlan, the Jewish soldiers who were killed in 2014, who were not yet given over to be buried. And it's agonizing for their families. Not that they're going to come back alive. We know that they're not alive. But yet, give me the closure to allow my relative to be buried. Give me the opportunity to go to a place where the child is buried, where I can go and visit the grave, where I can have an opportunity to give dignity to my child. Imagine Haruge Beitar, hundreds of thousands of people whose families were not, by law, they were not allowed to bury them. Imagine every day living with that for years. The Gemara says there was so much bloodshed at the time in Beitar that for seven years, I don't know if this is an exaggeration or is to be taken literally, but it gives you a perspective. The Gemara says for seven years, nobody needed to fertilize their fields because there was so much blood all over the neighborhood. It was naturally fertilized. Awful description. But imagine how these Jewish families felt who survived that pogrom, who survived that war, and yet were not given the opportunity to bury them, let alone that they lost all these relatives. But then, no kvura? It's devastating. Says the Gemara, on Tuba of, that gzera was lifted. And the local municipality said, now everyone's allowed to be buried. And the Jewish people rushed in to try to do the burial, assuming it's so many years later, what's going to be left? And not one body had disintegrated or decomposed. Years later, every body was intact and everything was exactly the way it was as if the murder had happened the day before. It is at that moment the Gemara says that they were misakin a new bracha in Berchas Hamazo, Hatova Hametiv, the last bracha that we say in Benching, is Hatov Shelo Hisrichu Hametiv Shenitnu Lekvura. They were so overjoyed that they were finally given this closure, this opportunity to give a proper burial to the people who had passed away. Something that was haunting them for years. And they thanked HaKadosh Baruch Hu eternally for that gift. That happened on Tuba Av. That happened on Tuba Av. And finally, the last thing that happened was, it was the Yom Shepasku Milichros Atzei HaMa'aracha. What does that mean? So the Gemara describes... We had a functioning Beis Amigdash. When you had the Beis Amigdash, you needed a lot of wood to be able to sustain the fire on the Mizbeach at all times. So the Gemara says that there are very particular considerations that are necessary to have the wood being used on the Mizbeach. And if you find a tolas, if you find a worm in the wood, that wood is disqualified. We want perfect wood. Now how are you going to make sure that there's not going to be a worm inside of wood? So the Gemara says they used to cut down the wood for months and then they would dry it over the summer months when it was so hot outside and that would basically kill any insects or animals that were living inside of the wood, and then they would use it. The day that they finally finished that long, long process of cutting the wood, gathering the wood, drying it out, and having it ready for the Beis Hamikdash was on Tuba of, And that's a reason to celebrate. From here, from that last point in the Gemara, we learn that when you finish something that is a very difficult, long process of a mitzvah, you make a celebration. This is why the Ramah says we make a siyam. This is what it's all about. Make a siyam because we're celebrating a difficult, long accomplishment. Somebody in our shul wrote to me right before Tisha B'Av, you know, a lot of people 
eat meat during the nine days when they go to a seum. So he wanted to, two different questions I got this year. One of them, both of them were interesting. Um, one of them was, can I make a seum on Pirkei Avos? I'm like, come on, oh, come on. Like, give me a break, right? So what's a seum about? It's not that we don't recognize that Pirkei Avos is very special. It's that you just like open the sitter and read through Pirkei Avos. Like, no, that's not a reason to eat meat during the nine days. The second question that I got was, can I make a siyum for the Suda HaMafsekes to eat meat during the Suda HaMafsekes? I'm like, come on. It's Erev Tishabov. Like, get over yourself. Like, you can't. Like, you had a barbecue every single night of the week or you went to a restaurant every night. It's Erev Tishabov. Like, you're about to sit on the floor. Can we maybe not have meat? Maybe. I could, can you handle that? Okay. So I said, I don't think it's appropriate. They said, sounds right. Okay. I'm glad we cleared that. But from here we learn... That when somebody finishes a long, hard mitzvah, a long, difficult mitzvah, you make a siyum, you make a celebration. Why? Because here they made a celebration on the day when they finished putting everything together for a very difficult, long mitzvah that took a long time. So a very practical application. I remember a number of years ago, it was before I was married, I was in Eretz Yisrael in the summer and they had a nefesh benefesh flight that was landing in Israel. And... Um, my father was there with us and he had told us, you know, we should really go and be machazik, all the olim. Let's go greet the flight uh, on the tarmac. If you've never done it, it's amazing. Um, it's a very, very special opportunity. Not only when it's your own children, I'm sure that's a mixed emotion, but when it's other people who you don't know, it's also very special to be there and to celebrate with them and to greet them and carry their bags and everything. It's amazing. They make a really nice uh, entry for them upon landing. So uh, the flight was landing at around seven o'clock in the morning. And you have to be with security clearance and everything. You have to be in the airport probably two hours before and they bring you onto the tarmac. So we're on the tarmac and everybody brought their tefillin because it's six o'clock in the morning. We had to make a minion. So we made a minion. It was a very large minion. And it comes to Tachnun and everybody's looking at each other like, do we say Tachnun? Do we not say Tachnun? And everyone's wondering, well, why wouldn't we say Tachnun? This is not a yamtif. Anyway, my father was there and he says, no, of course we're not saying Tachanun. So people were making fun of him. Oh, the Zionist, this, you know, whatever. Okay. And he got up after davening to explain why we don't say Tachanun. And he said, the Gemara says here, when you have a difficult mitzvah that takes a long time to finally finish, you make a celebration at the end. Tuba Av is one of the most celebrated days on the Jewish calendar, the Gemara says. One of the reasons why is because it's the day when we finish this very long process of a mitzvah of cutting down the wood for the Beis Amigdash, of cutting down the wood that's necessary for the Mizbeach. You know how long it takes to make Aliyah? You know how difficult it is? All the paperwork and all the finding the apartment and making sure and booking the flights, that, that's the small parts of it. I don't even know what else needs to be done. And everything that one needs in order to make Aliyah is not simple at all. It's a very long, arduous labor of love. When we're finished, the culmination of that, when you finally make it to Eretz Yisrael, we're going to say Tachnun. Does that make sense? If we eat meat during the nine days for a siyum on Pirkei Avos, then perhaps we can make a celebration out of somebody who is moving to Eretz Yisrael with their family and all the hurdles they needed to overcome to be able to successfully accomplish that dream. That was what my father said. And it was based on a tshuva... In Rabbi Vadi Yosef, in his Chuvas, where he writes that when one, let's say you have a, an elaborate siyum, not, not a nine-day siyum, when you have somebody who you know, makes a real serious elaborate siyum, 
Um, when you have something like that, and let's say you stop in the middle for mincha, right? Everybody there has to have a mincha. So Rabbi Vada writes, based on this Gemara, that we wouldn't say tafnun at that mincha. Why? Same reason why when we go to a wedding and everybody's gathered, everybody's assembled at the wedding for the simcha, we don't say tafnun there. Why? Because this is a simcha. So at a seem, it's the same thing. We're celebrating the culmination of you who have worked very hard to bring yourself to the place where you are to accomplish this great accomplishment, to overcome all the obstacles along the way. The way we celebrate is we have a siyum and we don't say tachnun because this in some way is considered a quasi-yumtif. It's considered to be a quasi-celebration. So my father felt that this would at least justify, this is greater than a siyum. This is the culmination of an amazing accomplishment of somebody who's finally able to be mekayim the mitzvah of yeshiva aretz. Now, when I told this to one of the families who landed, he said, this is the culmination. We're just getting started. Come back to us in five years from now. Let's see where we're holding. We'll make a see him then. Okay, but it's a culmination of a part of the process, a very large part of the process. And I appreciate the fact that it doesn't all go so smoothly from there. But still, it's a very big step and it's something that's very special. And everybody who's gathered there is only there to celebrate that accomplishment. This is just the background of what the Gemara tells us Tuba of is all about. And I think... It's important for us, especially at a time which is so divisive, at a time when it's so much division in the Jewish community. I'll just close. I'm, I'm over time already, but let me just share one thing. Um, I'm sorry that I'm doing this, but um, I'm not going to read it inside, but it's, it's a very interesting passage where he tries to tie together Reb David Tevel, one of the great uh, gedolim before the Holocaust in, in uh, Europe. He writes, like, what's the, what's the common denominator between many of these different issues that are raised in the Gemara? which we celebrate on Tuba Up. Like it sounds like it's just a bunch of random events that happen. And it just so happens that they turned out on the same day. And he writes that what it really is, is the celebration of HaKadosh Baruch And he writes when the Jewish people are separated, when they're not marrying one another, when they're not appreciating one another, the Rebona Shalom is incomplete. It's not just that we as a people are incomplete, it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu is incomplete. His Malchus, his kingdom is fractured. And that means it's not in its glorious state as it should be. And that's really what many of the things that the Gemara describes here are all about. We celebrate when they finish the mitzvah for the cutting the wood of the Beis HaMikdash to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu better. We celebrate the fact that all of these different things that happen, but serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu better also means that we come together. That's the way to serve Him better. That's the way to serve Him best. When we all come together. And that really is what we try to highlight on Tuba of. That's really what the underpinning of the entire celebration is all about to give us an understanding, to give us an appreciation and a, and a feeling and a sense of how wonderful it would be if only the Jewish people took away that division and stopped having all of the fusion and, and, and stopped having all the fractures that we have amongst our own community and the threats of civil war and the difficult protests that are going on. Again, not to take sides here, but it's just painful to watch it. It's painful to see what's going on. And for us, here in the United States, although that's not what we're dealing with, to try to reach out, to try to give ourselves an opportunity on Tuba of to think about this a little bit, to give perspective to where the Jewish people are headed, and to give HaKadosh Baruch Hu the complete Malchus that he so richly deserves. Amir Tzashem